What is the state of the gig economy? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Leah Palagashvili. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Leah Palagashvili. Leah is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Her primary research interests include entrepreneurship, regulation, and the gig economy. She has published academic articles, book chapters, policy papers, and articles in media outlets such as the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. In 2016, she was named one of Forbes's 30 Under 30 in Law and Policy. Palagashvili was an assistant professor of economics at State University of New York Purchase and earned her PhD in economics from George Mason University. Leah, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on, Leah. So we base each episode on a question and usually go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our, our question today is, what is the state of the gig economy? And of course, that's quite broad and there's lots of things to discuss. So I'd sort of like to split our conversation between first understanding what the gig economy truly is and uh, paint the picture of context that way. And then we'll get into how policymakers are reacting and so on and into more specifics. So jumping right into it, what do we mean by the gig economy? Let's start with the broadest uh, you know, brushstroke. That is the million-dollar question because everybody wants to talk about the gig economy, but no one really knows what it means. So I'm going to give you the narrow definition of the gig economy and then a broader definition of the gig economy. Uh, the, the, mo- the most narrow definition of the gig economy is really your Uber driver, your DoorDash or uh, Lyft driver, or those type of workers who are on so-called gig platforms. And that's the most narrow definition of the gig economy. But when we hear policymakers or when we watch the news or read articles, they're talking about the gig economy in a much broader sense. And what we're what we're talking about then is really all types of independent workers or independent contractors. These are workers who make income outside of the traditional employment opportunities. So, and, and by the way, they can span across a multitude of different industries, skill levels, and educational uh, attainments. For example, when we think of freelance musicians, those are independent contractors or independent workers. And when the news or when policymakers talk about gig economy, they're also thinking they're also thinking about these broader groups of people who are independent contractors because policy tends to impact all independent contractors, not just your Uber driver. And so let me give you a couple examples of what of who we mean when we talk about independent workers, the broader category. Um, these are, as I mentioned, freelance musicians. Uh, they can be high-skilled consultants like financial advisors. Many of them are independent contractors. Uh, they can be self-employed merchants or sellers, uh, tutors, nannies, software developers, and graphic designers and so forth. So you 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 get a really big, you know, broad picture of what we mean by the independent uh contractor workforce. And and by the way, you might have a question like many of us do, which is okay, but what percentage of that workforce is actually gig economy workers? So the Uber driver and you know the the Lyft driver, the del- uh, DoorDash deliverer. And so what we see from tax data actually is that those specific types of jobs, the gig economy jobs, are less than 10% of the overall independent contractor workforce. I see. Okay. So so when we get into, and just to like tie a cleaner bow around that, just to make sure I, I'm clear too, because I agree there's a lot mm-hmm. of misperce- misconceptions about what exactly gig economy is. It seems like when you're talking about this stuff, you have a broader umbrella of like this idea of the indepo- independent contractor, independent worker, and then sort mm-hmm. of the more gig, you know, economy style or gig job stuff is sort of within that umbrella. Is, is that a correct way to sort of visualize it? Or am I now getting myself even more confused? That that is that's the best way you could have put it. So the broader the broader workforce is independent worker, and one subset of the independent worker are gig economy workers. You could also think about like freelance creatives. That's another subset of the independent worker. Um, and yeah, th- this is just really important to emphasize um, because when policymakers are making policy, 
sometimes they say that they're going after the gig economy, but their policies are after independent workers and mm. independent contractors. That's why when I talk about um, when I talk about this workforce, I take the broader view because not, not many of these policies and not many of these analyses are only narrowly focused on Uber or Lyft right. or George Ash. They're 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 about independent contractors altogether. And by the way, Alex, a big group of these independent contractors are also construction workers and and other drivers, like perhaps drivers with Amazon or just taxi drivers. They're all independent contractors. And um, yeah, and so so for that reason, I, I try to tend I try to take the broader workforce, which is the independent worker in general. And again, it's anyone who makes either their primary or supplementary source of income through these alternative work arrangements, so non-employment arrangements. And just something else I think that is important to point out is that most of the workers on the gig economy platform, so the narrow definition that Uber, Lyfts, and DoorDash, they have W-2 employment jobs. So W-2 is the is the tax code in the U.S. for employees, but they have employment jobs and they are mostly engaged in this type of work as a supplementary source of income. And this is data that comes from official IRS tax data that the vast majority of gig economy jobs in the narrow definition are most are uh, supplementary earners. Right. Okay. And just to restate that stat that you said before, you said about it's only about around 10%, if I think if I heard you correctly, of folks in the labor force that are actually like gig economy workers in that more narrow definition, right? It's uh, 10%, 10% of the independent contractor workforce. So less, yeah, not the entire labor force, but about 10%, less than 10% actually of the independent contractor workforce are in the narrow definition of gig gig economy jobs. So Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Grubhub, and so forth. And you have off the top of your head the stat of like how many people in the labor force in general are just like independent contractors or independent workers? So that is a great question. And that depends on how how we measure um, independent contractors, because even the official tax data definition, their measure of independent contractor is independent contractors who provide labor services. Mm. And so if we take that Again, more it's broad independent contractors, but it's narrow in that they provide labor services. Um, in the U.S., there are about uh, 28 million workers, uh, according to this definition of independent contractors providing labor services. But as we know, there are other types of services, uh, such as renting um, and leasing and selling that are also independent work. And that's excluded uh, from that number, Alex. So if we actually take a very broad overview of what is independent work, including labor services, selling, leasing, and um, that number would come close to 55 million workers, so double. Okay, wow. And and the reason I was sort of fishing into that is because I did want to tie it back to something you brought up earlier, which is that, so you're basically saying that oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes when politicians are talking about going after the gig economy, they're talking, they're always talking about Uber, Lyft, people that are doing these quote unquote gigs. You're saying when it actually comes to time for policy rollout and what actually is going to be put on paper, if you will, um, they're really actually messing around with laws, regulations, and really stepping knee deep into things that will affect all of these independent workers, not just the people running these gigs is what you were saying, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think the reason is because political leaders are trying to grapple with how do we approach the challenges caused by these growing independent workforce. And the reason they're trying to grapple with it is because any independent worker, whether it's a gig worker, whether it's a construction worker, whether it's a freelance graphic designer or you know, a seller on Etsy, they are outside of the purview of typical labor regulations and employment-based protections that come with being an employee. And so, again, they might use the gig economy as this is who we're going after, but but really, their impact the the rules impact everybody because it's all about how do we help, and, and that's the justification, right? How do we help these group of workers who are outside of minimum wage laws and they don't get health insurance? At least this is the case in the U.S., right? Because health insurance is usually tied to employment, um, and that's why and that's why I focus on the broader independent uh, workforce and 
one more thing uh, just to add into the, you know, what is the gig economy landscape, but when we take the broader view of how many workers are in this workforce um, and we look at it as a percentage of um, overall workers, at least in the U.S., there are about 10 to 30 percent of workers engaging in this type of work as their primary source of income and up to 40 percent that are using it as a supplementary source of income. So that 10 to 29 percent of workers engaging in their primary source of income, the reason you see that big difference there is because it really depends on how you define the independent worker. If we're only considering those who provide labor services, that's 10 percent. If we're talking about the broader independent workforce, that's 30 percent of all U.S. workers are engaging in independent work as their primary source of income. And this really gets to what I've been seeing as a broader trend that's going on, which is we're seeing the nature of work changing. Right. And more and more workers are going into these types of jobs. And they're sometimes they're unstable, right? It's an unstable income. Um, and you might be wondering, like, why on earth would people leave a stable job, employment job, and work on Uber or work on having or work as a gra freelance graphic designer and have 15 different clients. Uh, and maybe they seem like radical workers, but for some people, they actually go into these type of jobs out of necessity. So maybe you're a mom who cannot take on a 9 to 5 p.m. job because of her childcare obligations. And uh, maybe you need the flexibility and independence to get the work done when, you know, when, when, when she can, maybe she can't afford daycare or, or a nanny and she has to work in between when the baby naps <laughs> or right. in between her kids' school hours. And that's one subset of workers that I focus on women um, who go into these type of jobs sometimes out of necessity. It's a way to make income, but also um, attend to her, attend to their um, primary caretaking obligations. Um, another type of worker that we see is, I usually give the example of Emma Stone's character in La La Land. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have, yeah. have you? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, so I don't know if you remember the scene, but there's a scene. Uh, so as we know, Emma Stone's character in La, uh, in La La Land, she's trying to make it as an actress in LA, but she has this waitress job um, in, in the meantime to basically make income. And there's a scene in there where she, you know, she gets this audition last minute, but she's scheduled to work and she can't get out, of, get out of work because of the audition. And I and I think, OK, Emma Stone's character, she would really benefit from having an independent work job because it'll, it gives you that flexibility to be able to schedule, um, to be able to take on these last minute auditions uh, without having, you know, this issue of, of, of a regular job and right. a schedule that's hard to get out of. Right. And so you see a group of people like that. And these and these type of um, independent work jobs as well. They're trying to do something else, right? Maybe they're trying to launch a business and so forth. And so they need these type of flexible jobs to help them make income in the meantime. And when we look at surveys of independent workers, the primary motivator across, you know, all of these various surveys is that they go into these jobs because of the flexibility. Um, and and that's and that's really that's a really fascinating aspect of these of these type of jobs and we we actually look at survey evidence post pandemic as well and post pandemic we we see the demand for flexibility has actually increased and and then uh, we're actually seeing more people entering independent work post pandemic as well right and i sort of have one more uh context sort of painting and setting question before i get into more specifics about your mm -hmm. policy brief and things like that and that's really like especially you know your point about the nature of work changing i just want to dive into that a little more because of mm -hmm. course one of the counter arguments you often hear on like the superficial side of these arguments about you know gig economies and this that the other thing is that basically if you know that you know large employers and so on and, and so forth as you know the nature of work does change there's less of an incentive for employers to treat workforce as well or with any responsibility mm -hmm. and you know and that we're going to end up with workforces largely full of interchange changeable contractors and so on and so forth. Whereas like, you know, a traditional form of employment, the nine to five, et cetera, is more stable and so on and so forth. Like obviously I'm, you know, brushing past a lot of nuance here, but because I'm trying to get to the more general question of that, it, it strikes me that, you know, what, what, there's sort of a tension between um, what people sort of, again, narrowly see as sort of a, a traditional model of work versus on the other side, what you're saying is this isn't just about one data point of whether somebody is like fully employed or a contractor. It's also about the nature of work changing overall. We can't think of this as just 
people are, uh, you know, um, connecting up with employers in, in, you know, a different way as far as the way their contracts are structured. This is a broader discussion, truly, about how just the economy's working overall is changing. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. And I, I've written a, some, I've written a piece about how various different factors, so technolo- technology, globalization, cultural attitudes and preferences, they're actually leading to a more diverse and innovative workforce. Um, and so, for, for example, we, we do see in, in preferences that individuals now value flexibility a lot more than they used to right. in jobs. And, that, and that's part of the nature of work changing, right? And then technology, of course, is fascinating because various technological innovations, they've reduced the transaction costs of contracting in the market and also creating greater exchanges between consumers and labor suppliers, which leads to more work opportunities for contractors and freelancers. So if you take something like TaskRabbit, right? 20 years ago, if I wanted, if I had a painting in my house that, you know, I'm, it's a huge painting, I'm a small person, I can't get the painting, you know, I can't hang up the painting on my own. Maybe I left that painting in in my closet or waited for a family member (laughs) to come and help me put up that painting. Now I can go on TaskRabbit or Thumbtack and I find an individual maybe a mile away who uh, I can ask to come and I can pay them to come and help me uh, put up this painting. And that's kind of that, that's the technological innovation aspect of like, look, look at how these technological innovations are reducing uh, reducing transaction costs is what we economists like to call it, but it's leading to more of these exchanges and, and it makes it easier for buyers and sellers to find each other. Right. And of course, it's also happening on the firm level. So we have these peer-to-peer exchanges where I'm not a firm, I'm just, you know, I'm just a person, I'm a consumer, and I just need someone to help me hang up this painting. And that's that's your contract opportunity there, right? That's consumer, that's um, on the supply direct suppliers to consumers, but also it's happening on the firm level as, as well, which is what you kind of alluded to, um, Alex. Right. And and was this like every time we talk about the trends of today or things we're seeing today, mm-hmm. you know, post 2022, you know, everybody defaults to just like, you know, saying whether it's true or not, that everything's either the fault of the pandemic, everything's been pushed into turbo drive because of the pandemic. Obviously, the pandemic shook up many things. But as far as a trends perspective in your research, is this are the kinds of things we're talking about today with the way the gig economy is going and trending? Did you see trends like I mean, there was tele telecommunications evolution and revolutions between, for example, 2000 and 2015. Even and I and I've seen that myself mm-hmm. in other capacities about how people's the nature of people's work changes. So is this stuff that was trending before the uh, the pandemic, and then like it sort of was thrown into turbo drive because of the pandemic? Have we just seen a steady trend of this type of um, you know the independent worker and the independent contractor and the gig economy increase? Like where are your kind of data points when you look at everything, seeing as far as the trends are concerned, recent, long time coming? How, how do you categorize that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've seen the growth in independent work pre-pandemic. So let's just take official tax data on this. So since 2000, we've seen uh, growth in independent work. Um, the, the, the tax records actually indicate that the share of workers with independent contracting income has grown by 22%. Um, and that was at a time when the share of workers with only employment income have decreased by 1.5%. Again, this is uh, this this is tax data that is pre-pandemic. When we look at other sources of sources of data, so official government surveys or other uh, other surveys that are done by uh, by companies, we we also see this trend pre-pandemic where we're seeing a growth in independent um, and independent work. Okay. And so what what we what we are seeing post-pandemic too is a continued <laughs> a continued trend in this growth, but also shifts in. Uh, preferences for greater flexibility uh, when it comes to work, and that that might mean maybe they just want more telecommuting options with their with their current employer. But we, there is a strong preference. This is across the entire labor. Um, this is let me try that again. Um, what we are seeing is that there is a strong preference for flexible flexibility in general, and that's across all types of workers. So we see that all types of workers are demanding more flexible job arrangements, and some of those workers are going into independent work because of that. And one one more thing I'd like to point out as well is that I, I, I mentioned this earlier, which is 
independent workforce is growing. But what's fascinating is that women are driving a large part of this growth. So according to official tax data, again, women saw a 68% increase in the number of independent contractors, while men saw a 37% increase in the number of independent contractors since 2001. And you might not be thinking about women in this type of workforce because, again, you might have the picture of Uber or Lyft or, or DoorDash in mind, but uh, these female independent workers have dominated um, the overall growth in the industry, such as healthcare and social assistance and educational services industries. And then across digital platforms, we see them in um, as in sellers, like online merchant sellers. So in Etsy, yep. for example, and then yoga instructor, instructors, dog walkers, influencers on Instagram. These are all independent worker roles. And all of those type of roles are dominated by women in these in these industries. Are there other ways we can slice up the demographics as far as the data you've seen in terms of who has benefited from, you know, uh, basically the gig economy, but also the independent sort of worker economy in general? Like I can imagine that, you know, from a in in a good way, from a competition perspective, this might provide access to certain people or, um, you know, underserved or underrepresented communities actually like being able to breach into more traditional workforce positions. You know, for example, if a if a, uh, you know, a company, a high tech company, let's say, is traditionally hiring locally for something and now they're hiring you know, uh, an independent contractor internationally, you know, it seems like other people might actually have an opportunity for a type of employment that they might have not have otherwise had before. That's just a thought I had. I'm not sure if there'd actually be any data on that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Cause if you think about it, Alex, like Fiverr and Upwork and all of these different platforms, your customers are coming from across the globe as well. So that has increased your ability to make income and to have income opportunities in that way as well. So it, it's not just US-based companies that are demanding your services or your labor. These platforms are really revolutionized kind of globalization in this sense, right? Because I, I could be a graphic designer on, you know, on one of these platforms like Upwork or Fiverr, and I have clients from across the world. And that is maybe what's making it a sustainable income opportunity um, for me. One thing I, I, I thought about as well when you mentioned who are other uh, populations of workers who are benefiting from this. So there was a, uh, um, let me start again. There was a new study done by the IRS that looked at the presence of uh, workers who had contact with the criminal justice system. Mm. And they found that workers who had contact with the criminal justice system were more likely to go into gig work than traditional employment. Um, and the the conclusion of their study was that that gig economy is providing an important avenue for work uh, for those who previously had a criminal record. And that's another group of people that we haven't talked about before at all, but it's just a brand new study. It came out six months ago. So in, in upcoming work, I wanted to highlight this workforce um, as well. But like women, right? we might there might be a lot more going on with this with these group of people in the gig economy and broader alternative work arrangements as well right you know sure for example you could picture somebody maybe they're they're serving as some sort of like probation term and they're trying to reintegrate into like the workforce or society or whatever else and so on and so forth they're going to have very unique circumstances also sometimes two traditional barriers to employment um just even like about like you know Sometimes even a sit-down interview might run up against someone's prejudices about someone's past, for example. But I guess if you're just directly providing a service online of, hey, I need a graphic a graphic designed or, hey, I need like, you know, somebody do a quick task for me, it sort of eliminates some of those both, you know, barriers to potential employment and income and also even like some transaction costs along the way. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's, it's really fascinating just all of the different opportunities that are available for work today and just how much technology has revolutionized these opportunities and and made all of these different work opportunities available uh, for individuals. I I will say one more thing. Um, Another way we can slice up the the data is looking at the industries where we've seen the greatest growth in independent workers. And this might be a shock to, to people, but the transportation industry is not one of those that have seen the greatest growth of independent uh, workers since 2000, since 2000. Again, according to official, this is official tax data, we see that the uh, greatest share of independent uh, workers is in professional, scientific, and technical services, hmm. um, as well as healthcare, 
finance, insurance. And this paints a vastly different picture than the conquest of app-based delivery drivers, you know, across America and, and Canada. <laughs> and again, it's just like a it's it's a fascinating it's a fascinating way to understand it as well, especially there are some great examples of independent workers and healthcare industries and healthcare roles that we previously hadn't seen before. I'm going to give you an example of um, my favorite example that I use, which is the on-demand phlebotomists. You can find them on the app called WorkPath. So if you need to have your blood taken at any point while you're in the office at home, you can pick up your app and demand and uh, request an on-demand you know, independent hmm. phlebotomists that come by to come by your home or your office. <laughs> That's interesting. Wow. Yeah. And I, I want to get to actually some specific uh, policy and regulation stuff right now, but um, I don't want to break it up with the break. So let's just take our break right now. So we'll, we'll do that. Everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Leah Palagashvili today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Rosa Pairello, and Danny Leroy. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Leah Palagashvili today. Uh, Leah, I think the first half was great. We painted like a really great context and picture of what we mean by the gig economy and what we mean by that within sort of the independent worker contractor type of economy and workforce. And we got into some other great stuff as well. I do now want to pivot into a couple more specific notes about and you did mention this in our first half, but I'd like to dive into it more now, but like how the government is viewing this and how the states or different jurisdictions are trying to regulate this. Obviously, you've looked deep into this. You have not only a handle on what is happening, you also have a handle on some great critiques. So I, I, that's the kind of stuff I want to jump into now. So as sort of a general question within that pillar of conversation, um, so you do note that uh, you know all the changes and trends in the way the economy is going right now and all the great things we've been talking about. Um, all this stuff's running up against like old forms of regulation and classification. So at the highest level, before I get into more specific questions, can, can you explain just, just what that means? You know, someone who's not familiar with this topic might be like, well, well, I don't understand. People are working. How's that running into the old ways things have been regulated and classified? Yeah, that's a great question. So the problem is that laws written many, many years ago offer only two primary paths of work. So the first path is through traditional employment, and that comes often with traditional benefits, but also without independence and flexibility that many workers desire or may require for personal reasons. So that means they typically have to work 9 to 5 p.m., or maybe they have to work a certain hours a week, and they uh, they have a long-term contract and so forth. So that's, that's through the first path of traditional employment. Then there's a second path of legally allowed work, which is called, which is through independent work or legally classified as independent contracting. And that provides flexibility and independence that many workers may desire or require, but it's without the common workplace benefits and, uh, and it's outside of the purview of labor regulations. So in fact, our institutions and our, and our labor laws have made these two radically distinct forms of, of work. One you're, you know, you're married to an employment job and you have very specific hours that you might have to work unless you negotiate out of it. And But also you get benefits. At, you, you're, you also get benefits. And then this other type of work, which we're seeing, which is new and it's growing, you get independent and flexibility, but you don't have any benefits that come with it. And so a worker is kind of stuck with like, okay, well, if I go to independent work, I have flexibility, but I don't have common workplace benefits. Mm. And that's kind of the broad overview of these two types of work and why policymakers are trying to grapple with how to deal with this, because from their point of view, as this independent workforce grows, that's going to be more and more people outside of the purview of labor regulations and outside 
of um, typical and, and, and they won't have access to typical employment based benefits. Mm-hmm. And to dive into that a little further, um, you know, you, you've mentioned like um, some, some workers or, or so on and so forth, some roles might be outside of traditional regulation. So you have regulation on the one hand and benefits on the other. Can you just, you know, obviously we can't go through the exhaustive list if anyone's seen, especially American labor code legislation. There's more than we could ever cover here. But at a general level, what, what, what kind of regulation and what kind of benefits would someone that's an independent mm-hmm. worker be outside of? So in terms of labor regulations. We're talking about minimum wage, overtime regulations, the ability to collectively bargain, such a former union. Those are only allowed for employees, not for independent workers. So for example, this is a criticism of Uber and and Lyft and these other companies, which is that, you know, the, the independent contractors or the drivers on their platforms, they don't have to make minimum wage, right? That is, that regulation is only for employees. And then there's also, um, they're outside of the purview of social insurance programs. So uh, unemployment benefits is the big one. So if you're an employee and you lose your job, you have access to unemployment benefits. If you're an independent uh, contractor and you lose your job, you don't have access to unemployment benefits. Hmm. Um, in, in the U.S., by the way, health insurance is a big thing because uh, if you're an employee, you typically get health insurance through your employer. If you're self-employed or an independent contractor, you don't get health insurance through your employer. You have to go through, um, well, we have the ACA now, but essentially you don't have health insurance benefits or contributions that can uh, that your company can provide right. through, uh, for health insurance. And by the way, I, I want to point out that the unemployment benefits actually came to play during the COVID-19 pandemic. So our... The are in the U.S. The Federal CARES Act of March 2020 actually included a temporary provision for unemployment insurance for independent contractors and self-employed workers, and that was the first time it has happened in history. Because again, typically unemployment benefits are reserved for in, uh, workers who are employees. So if independent workers lost their jobs uh, during the pandemic, uh, then they wouldn't have access to unemployment benefits, which is why this. This uh, Federal CARES Act included that temporary provision to allow unemployment insurance benefits for independent workers and self-employed workers. Mm-hmm. I just want to note for those of our friends uh, listening, either in Canada or other parts of the world, like although we had a you know we're speaking specifically in the U.S. in some areas, like many of the same types of critiques about whether you're officially employed or you're an independent worker. Um, you know, obviously nuances aside, like health insurance and so on, they they apply often in many cases. Like in Canada, we hear the exact same arguments about like you know if someone is not officially employed. They they lose out on certain types of benefits as far as like the way they're looked at from the employment insurance system and so on and so forth. So, so a lot of it generally does apply, whether it's in the U.S. Um, or in other countries as well. And and you have notably in, in your policy brief that having said all this, you know, governments ultimately have a choice to either look at workforce forces and reclassify them and mess around with those types of things. Or on the other hand, they can look into getting them access to the kinds of benefits or regulations and so on that um, that you were just describing. So first part first and second part second, can you just get a little bit into what reclassification means and like how states have been approaching this? And obviously specifically in the United States, I know you have some very specific information. Like what does it look like when the government uh, tries to reclassify and mess around in that way? And also w- what are your critiques of that, frankly? Because I, of course there was a lot of them in the policy brief there. Yeah, that's a great question. Can I point point to your first comment though that this is also important for in Canada. I, I actually just testified for the um, Ontario government on this question. So oh, they wow. have a portable benefits advi- they have a portable benefits advisory panel that has emerged because they are also considering thinking about um, how to approach part-time workers, self-employed and self-employed and independent contractor workers in in Canada for the same reasons that we outlined. Mm. So it's just a testament to your exact point that I I I just uh, just testified with them on exact on this exact question because they are also considering what should we do with these growing right. part-time workers, self-employed workers and and, and gig, gig workers. So to, to to the question that you had asked. Um right now in the US, I like to talk about it as there are two buckets of policy uh, proposals that are being passed around. So bucket number one is called reclassification. And these are policies that try to reclassify workers as employees instead of allowing them to maintain their 
uh, current classifications as independent workers. Um, the second bucket is called access to portable benefits. And these are policies that say, hey, you're an independent worker. Let's allow you to maintain the, that non-traditional work arrangement, but let's help you improve your access to flexible or portable benefits. Now, bucket number one, uh, in the U.S., the biggest policy change uh, was led in California in, in 2009 on this. So California implemented what's called Assembly Bill 5, AB 5, and they created a vastly stricter definition of what it meant to be an independent contractor. And what it did is it significantly limited the circumstances for being an independent contractor uh, in, in California. Um, and, as, and as a result, by the way, which I'll, I'll talk about here in a second, it led to a lot of backlash, especially from the creative community of workers. So these are musicians, choral singers, dancers, as many people might be aware, is the, those type of workers are, a lot of them are freelancers. And so this law impacted them. And the New York Times and LA Times ran these profiles at, um, of, of all these impacted workers um, who were losing their job opportunities because of AB5. Uh, because what it essentially did was told the music venues, hey, you know, that dancer you might hire, you might have to hire them as an employee rather than right. they come in once a week to dance <laughs> in your in your um, in your studio and so forth. So it created this huge backlash across many different workers. But I think the creative community of workers was really highlighted in the U.S. And it and actually ended up um, AB5 ended up exempting. Um, now they have exempted over 100 professions <laughs> from from AB5 precisely because uh, because many of them are like, we're losing our job opportunities. Um, right. There's a great article in the New York Times about how after California's AB5 was passed, uh, Vox had eliminated uh, 200 writers because writers are also, they tend to be freelancers, right? right? So right. anyone who tends to be in these type of professions, all of a sudden was like, okay, what's going on? <laughs> I don't have my income opportunities anymore. And they're not turning into employment opportunities because for many of these jobs, it doesn't make sense for them to be employment jobs, or maybe it's just one-off, right? One-off type of projects that someone has you come in um, to work on once a week or once a month, or maybe three times a week. So that was California's AB5. It really changed the landscape. It led to a lot of backlash uh, from these freelancers, independent workers. Um, and, and the goal of the bill, the outward goal was we're going after the gig economy companies. What ended up happening, of course, is that um, there was a ballot measure in uh, in California that also exempted all these app-based workers. So the Uber, the Lyfts, and the Jordashes were also exempt uh, from, from, from California's AB5. We're also seeing this happen at, at our national level as well. Our Department of Labor is currently finalizing a, a rule that would also have a stricter definition of what it means to be an independent contractor. And this means it would impact workers not only in California, but across across the nation. They're currently reviewing, they have a proposed rule out on this. They haven't finalized it yet, but all eyes are, are on the Department of Labor rule about this because it could have profound impact on, on this workforce. Yeah, that's very um, good. No, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Go, go ahead. You're on a roll. Yeah, and so um, so the, the problem with these reclassification policies is that uh, they have, one, they don't address, you know, a central drawback for the millions of workers who will still remain as self-employed, which is access to workplace benefits, because obviously the reclassification efforts don't attempt to reclassify every single self-employed worker in the in the U.S., um, but they they seek to just alter that definition to limit the number of workers who are self-employed and independent contractors. But that is a central drawback is that there are still going to be millions of workers who will remain as independent contractors and self-employed um, and they don't have access. They still won't have access to workplace benefits. Right. Um, and then the other the, the main the main drawback that that I've talked about that I just highlighted in, uh, you know, in California is that. Um, many independent workers would not receive the additional benefits associated with becoming employees because many of them would neither become employees nor be able to maintain their jobs as independent workers, which is exactly what we saw happen in California. And this is because companies obviously cannot extend all contracting positions into employment positions right. 
uh, they therefore leave workers with fewer job opportunities um, altogether. Mm -hmm. That's one. That's the major drawback of these sort of reclassification policies. The other big thing that you know we have to come to accept is that many of these independent workers, the majority of that workforce, actually prefer to be in these non-traditional work arrangements over employment arrangements. And we ha we had a Bureau of Labor Statistics survey um, that found that. Uh, almost 80% of independent contractors prefer that job arrangement over a traditional arrangement. And as we talked about in the first part is that that's because independent work provides far more flexibility in terms of work schedule, which gives workers more freedom to choose what time and how often to work. Um, and again, as I mentioned, there are some there are some people in this group that really do need these flexible work arrangements. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to participate in the labor force. And that was women, for example. So if you restrict independent work opportunities and try to reclassify independent work as traditional employment, that would disadvantage women, many of whom tend to be the primary caregivers and their families. And they turn to independent work for the flexibility they need in, in their in their work schedules. And we see this across surveys, many, many different surveys. And one survey, for example, found that 96% of women prefer to participate in independent work precisely because they said they need that flexibility and working hours. Right. I mean, that's. I was just going to say that a little earlier, too. So I'm glad you jumped right into that, which is basically, obviously, that's something that cuts both ways. In the first half of our conversation, we were talking about um, the independent worker and the gig uh, subset within that is benefiting certain groups, you know, women specifically. You also talk about people that have had contact with the criminal justice system. So, I mean, on the flip side, if, you know, you know, regulating that more and actually the reclassification route and the doubling down on the sort of regulation and tightening the grip on that sort of route that obviously on the other side could harm all, all those at the margin sort of cases that we think of. Cause if people always have in their head sort of like, Oh, so-and-so is working nine to five on a contract five days a week, they should be employed. That's often one of the, the bigger sort of arguments, like fine, maybe, maybe there's a case for that. I don't know without getting into that right now. It's more like you also have to think of all the fringe cases and all the kinds of things you're talking about in the first half that if they're helped by this sort of thing they're also going to be harmed in the meantime yeah and one one more thing about harm alex that you kind of pointed to is that um remember that the majority of this workforce at least in the u.s are supplemental earners right so they have full-time w-2 jobs they probably don't want another w-2 job right and that's the benefit of having when i say w-2 excuse me i mean it's it's a tax classification in the u.s so Right. These workers have a full-time employment job. They probably don't want another employment job. And that's why they're supplemental earners on these different on the through these different type of work opportunities. And so the rules reclassification policies actually do not help any of the supplemental right. earners because they at least they only risk them losing those job opportunities, but they don't help them because if they have full-time jobs, they already have access to employment-based protections and benefits that we've talked about. Right. And for those of us listening in Canada, like I'm assuming the W-2 is like, it's pretty much like analogous to when, you know, like a T4 sort of thing here, right? Like you're basically fully employed and so on and so forth. Um, so, okay. So we've talked about that. Um, so that's one route, the reclassification route, the regulation route. You've explained what mm -hmm. it is. You've talked about um, the uh, the sort of critiques of that. Um, so on the other hand, uh, we can look into getting people more access to portable benefits. So a little bit more detail on what portable benefits are and why you think that's a better route would be uh, great if you could get into that. So portable benefits are benefits that are not tied to employment and they can travel with the worker as they go between different companies or if they have many different clients and organizations. And when we look at surveys of self-employed workers, we find that um, greater than 80% of self-employed workers said that they would like flexible, shared, or portable benefits. They don't want employment-based benefits, right, because they're not employees. So they specifically point to this concept of flexible, uh, flexible or portable benefits. Um, now, what can this look like? This can be um, an account that you have uh, that many different clients or companies that you work with can contribute to that account. Um, now, before I jump into what can be possible with flexible and portable benefits, I want to highlight um, a legal challenge and a legal barrier, I should say, that exists 
in both U.S. and in Canada, because I, I testified about this in Canada. So you have the exact same rule in Canada, which is right now, if you're an independent contractor, a hiring party of you, an organization, a company, or even a client cannot give you um, benefits or cannot can contribute to a fund for you in any way. I mean, they could, but then they would risk having you be reclassified as employee. Right. And that's because of the way that the law is written. So if a company gives benefits to independent contractors, that, uh, you know, for us, it's the IRS or the Department of Labor might look at that worker and be like, huh, you gave that worker um, benefits. Well, they look like an employee then. Let's reclassify them as employees. Right. And this is a huge problem. It has been uh, many different companies have come forth and talked about this. The you know the CEO of Uber and a New York Times op-ed explicitly talked about this and said we are happy to try to provide benefits or to contribute to benefits for our drivers, conditional on the law allowing us to do so. And it really is a huge barrier. Many people don't don't think about this, but if you're a company, you're not going to want to take that that risk. And there's uncertainty of. One of giving benefits to your independent contractors, if tomorrow the the IRS or another agency comes and says, well, you gave them benefits, they look like employees, let's reclassify that whole workforce. Um, and so that's one of the that's one of the legal barriers to benefits that I point to in my policy brief. And what I talk about there is just, okay, let's start with step one. <laughs> the easiest most simple, low-hanging fruit solution that can be done today in Canada and in the U.S. is that we can remove that factor, the presence of benefits, from worker classification tests. What that means is that if the agency sees that you know a company like Uber gave benefits to their drivers, that can't be used against them. And that's really simple. It's just, it's it's really, it could even be done by a regulatory change. It doesn't have to be done by, you know, a different policy. Right. Um, and I just want to point out that as of last week, there is one state in the U.S. which has which has moved forward with this, with this, uh, with this plan. So the state of Utah, uh, and I should say it's technically not signed by the governor yet. It's awaiting the governor's signature. But the state of Utah did ex did exactly this. They, um, you know, the, their Senate and their House passed uh, a law that said the presence of benefits to independent contractors can't be used against them um, in these worker classification tests. And that, again, it's 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 not going to. It might not fundamentally change where we're headed, which is a uh, you know the North Star, which is decoupling benefits entirely from employment. But it provides that small necessary step. So we like to say marginal steps towards a better world. So if we remove the ability for companies to voluntarily give benefits to their independent contractors or set up these different funds or contributions, that is one small step, but a necessary step that we need to unleash portable benefits for self-employed workers. Mm -hmm. And some people might think of that as like, oh, well, you know, they're mine immediately might jump to, well, that just means that a, a company gets away with not needing to employ someone, even though, you know, you know, in the, when it comes to the benefit discussion, but from the worker side, that also gives them the ability to perhaps organize a little bit, or for instance, go back and uh, in their, even in their independent or their group contract or whatever's happening and saying like, Hey, like I would like some benefits through this process. If you want to retain me as whatever this two day, a week graphic designer or whatever mm -hmm. and no you don't have to be scared just because we do that that it's going to screw up the whole arrangement i think that's very important on the worker side as well yeah that's a great point i just want to highlight too so in you know before uber conquered north america right <laughs> um independent most drivers taxi drivers and other type of drivers were already classified as independent contractors in new york state for example taxi drivers and these four hire vehicles were always independent contractors mm. and as a result in 1999 so again pre uber's conquest in 1999 new york state actually set up what's called the black car fund where it charges it was um it, where it charges a 2.5% tax to customers for each taxi for each taxi ride in the state and the fund is to allow independent contractor drivers which is the majority of them access to workers compensation insurance now i bring up this example just to showcase that 
look, the, these are this type of role, at, at least in the U.S., and then we look at data again before Uber's conquest of America, um, drivers have, for the most part, always been self-employed and independent contractors. Right. And so we don't really solve a problem by then making them employees. We do solve a problem, what which is workers' comp, you know, not having access to workers' compensation insurance. When we set up these different um, policies or opportunities for workers who are independent contractors to have access to different types of benefits. So I use that Black Car Fund in New York as one example because, again, it was set up in 1999 before all of these different companies came about. And it and it tried to solve a real problem, which is the majority of these drivers are independent contractors. What can we do to help them? <laughs> and that's why I propose these sort of portable benefit solutions for uh, for independent workers is because we have to accept and we have to listen to what these workers want. When we look at the survey evidence, a majority of these workers do not want employment-based benefits because they want to they want to maintain their non-traditional work arrangements. Right. And so if we want to actually help them, but and we listen to what they want, they say they want access to portable or flexible benefits that can be with them no matter if they're an employee or they decide to be self-employed. Right. No, I think that's an excellent point that you bring up that example. I think it's a great one, too, because I think you're absolutely right. When, when people tend to talk about these sort of issues, you know, post-pandemic or the rise of telecommunications, different technologies, you know, more gig workers, anytime the quote-unquote the internet, especially, and, you know, of course, Uber, you're literally physically being driven around, but it's an app, you know. A lot of the focus tends to be on just this technological aspect and this whole idea that we're dealing with new technology, so we're dealing with new problems, but it's not as if the dynamics in the economy of independent workers and contractors just came around, as you said, because of Uber. I mean, like, you know, there's people taking contract jobs on the weekend back in 1920 and 1850. Like, you know, so it's not like, yes, some of the specific nuances have changed. Absolutely, technology has introduced some things that we've never seen before, of course. But I guess it's very also important to note, as you were sort of alluding to there, that it's not as if every single dynamic that we're seeing now has been unheard of before someone downloaded Uber on their iPhone, right? And Alex, I'm so glad you brought this up because I do have a research study on exactly this on exactly this point. Oh, so my go. co-author and I, we wanted to, we do ask this question. We're like, is there something fundamentally different between independent work? Like, the, is there something fundamentally different in the nature of work between independent work and employment? And we use um, we use uh, you know this this database in the U.S. called ONET. It's just, it's sponsored by our Department of Labor. And it has over 900 occupations in the U.S. and a bunch of work characteristics about those occupations. So they might ask, like, does this occupation require a lot of physical strength or does it require a lot of, um, you know, does it require a lot of sitting? <laughs> does it require you to work with teams and so forth? And so what my co-author and I do is we think about, OK, what is fundamentally different between independent work and, employ and employment type and employment based work? And we use what's called the transaction costs. Um, economics framework and what they talk about is that your that employment in employee in employment type of work there's more likely to be um more what's called joint or team production and it's harder to separate one worker's contributions to the overall output in those type of jobs whereas independent work um there tends to be less team production and one worker's contributions are more easily definable or separable. So imagine like producing a screenplay or giving someone a ride, right? So that's like easy to measure and be like, okay, that there has there was a start and an end, and he that person provided a ride. Um, and what we do is we we pull out every single job characteristic that we think is indicative of team production within this Department of Labor sponsored uh, database and looked at over nine hundred occupations, and we. And we um, we separate occupations that we found on any gig economy platform. So if we found a driver on a gig economy platform, we put that as an independent worker. If we found a tutor on those platforms, they went, they went into the independent worker category. And we find um, statistically significant differences across all of the measures that we chose, which is fascinating and great, that there's something fundamentally different between the type of work that is produced through independent work than there is employment. 
Hmm. And maybe that explains why like human resources managers, right? You don't, that's not really a gig or independent work type of job. Right. You find that more in the employment context. Right. But being a tutor, right? And being a driver and um, these other types of jobs, there's something fundamentally different in their nature of, in the nature of that work that makes it more amenable to be independent worker jobs. And we have that paper for any of your listeners that are interested. It's on um, our website on Mercatus. It's called Employee Versus Independent Worker, a Framework for Understanding Work Differences. And it it was fascinating to us to to kind of look through all of these different jobs, look through these work characteristics and uh, find really statistically significant differences between these two types of jobs. Right. I mean, it's not as if the the idea of moonlighting as a fill in the blank here is is something new, right? It's not like within the last yeah. couple pandemic years, right? Um, and I mean, like I, I should also say, I guess too, like I mean, like you know, we've talked, you talked a lot about labor statistics and tax statistics and so on. I mean, it's not to mention that who knows precisely. I mean, there are estimates, uh, but how big, you know, for instance, the independent worker cash and side gig economy is as well, right? I mean, not everyone reports everything too. So for better or worse, and the ILS, of course, has a completely neutral tax stance on this, but um, like, you know, there are people out there that are making income that's important to them. It's not taxable, it's not being tracked and so on. It, it follows the same dynamics, right? They're independent workers. Uh, if you're taking a side job, you know, erecting some drywall in someone's house on the weekend, typically that's not on T4 for the one day in Canada, at least. So, I mean, I think that's also a very important aspect, too, when we really zoom out and think of the nature of independent work in a free economy. That's like a the bigger topic unto itself. Of course, it's not all going to be within the constructs of uh, a W-2, as you were saying, or a T-4, for example. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, so, for example, if you if you hire your next door neighbor to help you with landscaping, right? You're not going to issue that person a tax form. Right. And so that type of job doesn't get counted in, in the overall measures, uh, which comes from tax data, for example. But you just you did make me think of another survey that does try to address this. So um, the Federal Reserve Survey of Economic Decision-Making, um, it asks a survey of all adults in the U.S. if they've engaged in any type of gig, informal casual work. And that would include this type of, uh, that would include Alex, you asking your neighbor, right, to uh, come over and help and you pay them for their, for the landscaping services. And it found that there were um, close to 80 million adults. So 30% of, of adults in the U.S. engaging in this type of informal gig or casual work. So vastly more than we do get from official tax data statistics. Right. And with that, I'm actually looking at the clock. I mean, our, our time is pretty much wound down here. We we did cover a lot in this conversation. So I'm, I'm going to move us to our, our formal wrap-up now. Um, in each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word. So if we can bring the conversation full circle, Leah, and try and put a finer point on our exploration of the question and our theme of the episode today, let me ask you the official last question of our episodes here, which is, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what the state of the gig economy is and the, and the nature of independent uh, workers and, and the independent work economy, as we were saying. In other words, if you wanted someone listening to us here to take away just one or two or a few things, if anything, from everything we've been discussing, what would that be ultimately? I think it would be that we should welcome these growing flexible forms of work because they are beneficial and desirable opportunities for a large set of working individuals. And we should embrace and welcome the reality that many of these workers choose and prefer these types of non-traditional work arrangements. But at the same time, we need to fix the shortcomings that exist in these flexible work arrangements. So for example, workers do not have access to benefits afforded to traditional employees. Um, these limitations have led to policy battles, you know, in the U.S. and in Canada. Um, and but, but the real tension, these tensions are arising because our system is trying to prioritize the immobility of benefits. So benefits tied to one employer in a world where we are seeing worker preferences have shifted and there's more value placed on choice and portability. So I would say that to better meet the needs of this new and growing independent workforce, 
we can think about how to make policy changes to allow access to flexible benefits for a flexible workforce. I think that's a great place to leave it. So Leah Palagashvili, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segain. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. The Curious Task.